let us now turn our attention to God's word as found in Psalm 29. Psalm 29. Please listen now to the reading of God's word. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedar. The Lord breaks the cedar of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bear, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. As we dive into our passage this morning, I want you to consider your own life. There, where you are, as you breathe, as you think, as you feel, you are a person with a body, a soul, a mind, emotions, desires, aspirations, plans, relationships, sorrows, joys, strengths, weaknesses, highs, and lows. In short, you are a very unique and complex being created in a very unique and complex way. Moreover, you occupy a very unique place in this world, you. No one else is you. I know this news, right? No one else is you. You are you given unique gifts, talents, experiences. You are here right now thinking, living, being a human. But why? Why? Or in the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is your chief end? The answer provided in the Catechism is that our chief end is to what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Thousands of years before the Westminster Catechism asked that question, David already knew the answer. And so here's where we begin. Our chief end stated. Our chief end stated. And what is our chief end? Why are you here? Why are we living, existing, being human in this world? To recognize God's unequaled greatness. Recognize God's unequaled greatness. Verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to who? 
the Lord, all heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Sin has turned us all, I include myself, please hear me on this, sin has turned us all into self-loving machines. And herein precisely is where the problem lies for all of us, all of us. We want to do exactly the opposite of what verses 1 and 2 tell us to do. We are consumed with the self, not with God. Our problem as humans is that we want to spend our lives recognizing our own so-called greatness. That's what Adam started back in the Garden of Eden. He started a war against God through the search search for self-greatness. And this search for self-greatness, guess what? It is all-consuming because self is just another name for what Paul calls the flesh which is to be understood as everything within our lives that raises itself against God's supremacy. It was because of this glory-seeking flesh that Cain killed Abel. It was because of this glory-seeking flesh that man decided to build the Tower of Babel. But let us make it personal, shall we? It is because of this glory-seeking flesh that we can't forgive those who offend us. It is because of this glory-seeking flesh that we harbor bitterness within. It is because of this glory-seeking flesh that we give into dangerous and destructive lusts. It is because of this glory-seeking flesh that we mistreat our neighbor. It is because of this glory-seeking flesh that we erupt in anger when provoked. It is because of this glory-seeking flesh that we give into fear when trouble comes. It is because of this glory-seeking flesh that we become anxious about tomorrow. It is because of this glory-seeking flesh that we crave the attention. In short, the passions of Our flesh are the main hindrance to you and I living out our chief purpose in this life. Which is to get glory to God, not to ourselves. How did God respond to this mess? Well, he did respond to this mess. How? Well, he started by calling a people unto himself who were set apart for something very unique. You know their names, right? What is the people that God set apart? Israel. By calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and by establishing their descendants as a unique nation, God was already in the beginning stages of making something new in the world. How? Listen to this. Israel was to be the first nation of all the nations in the world whose battle cry was not let us make a name for ourselves as in the Tower of Babel, 
but rather, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. In a world that was fiercely in love with glory, Israel was to be different from all the rest of the nations. In and through Israel, was, God was making war against that principle that had risen itself against God in Adam, namely the exaltation of the self against his maker. The people of God were called to look away from themselves as the very first order of business. Psalm 29 then begins by calling us to do what the flesh hates. Namely, take your life, your very life, and make it about God and not about you. Can we be honest? The flesh doesn't like that. The flesh wants to make it all about itself. That's why we run into all kinds of troubles in our lives. David makes it clear here that our purpose is to be God-centered rather than what? Self-centered. And isn't it? That's, is it so simple. If we could all be God-centered, guess what? All our problems would go away. But they don't. You know why? Because this is really a war. Your flesh wants it all. He wants it all. But David makes it clear here that our purpose is to be God-centered rather than self-centered, which for us Christians is just another way of saying, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of what? The flesh, Galatians 5.16. Seek the glory of God. That's where your chief end begins. This is why you are here. This is why you were born. This is why you were conceived in your mother's womb. Let us be a, a bit more specific. There are certain features here that I want to highlight briefly. Our chief end is stated in three specific ways. First, it is stated as comprehensive. Did you notice that? Who should give God glory? Well, David begins with heavenly beings. So, all beings. David wastes no time and goes straight through the heavens and calls on those who dwell there. Isn't it interesting how David, a mere human being, commands angels to give God glory? Yes, man was made a little lower than the angels, but when it comes to glorifying God, angels and man have the exact same duty. Even the mightiest of beings are to make their very existence a matter of glorifying God. How much more should we do the same? No one is exempt from this call. So David, as a mere man, has the audacity, the audacity to call on angels and remind them of their purpose. In fact, in Psalm 148, even the sun, the moon, and the shining stars are called to praise God. Talk about comprehensive. Secondly, our chief end is stated as mandatory. It is God's due. We must ascribe to God the glory due his name. Sounds familiar? 
Does it sound familiar? Doesn't this remind you of what Jesus is due according to Paul? What does Jesus do according to Paul? Well, he possesses the name above what? Every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. How interesting that the same glory that the Old Testament says we should give to God, now in the New Testament says we need to give it to Jesus. Our chief end is not optional, it is mandatory. And number three, our chief end is stated as supreme. Supreme. What is our chief end? Is to worship. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This reminded me of what Jesus said about paying taxes. <laughs> Do you remember that story? When they came to Jesus with a coin? Remember that? Give Caesar what is Caesar's and then give God what is God's. Do you remember that story? I love that story. And what does Caesar deserve? Taxes. Give him your coin. What does God deserve? Worship. Give him your life. Give him your life. God calls us to the supreme calling of worship. No one else, nothing else in your life is deserving of this. Only the one true God. That's our chief end stated. Now, let's see our chief end reinforced, reinforced, our chief end reinforced, God is above all, God is above all, join me as I read verses 3 through 9 once again, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and siren like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And his temple all cry glory. Now this is certainly a type of language to which we are not used to. But the point is to put images in our head that are meant to reinforce this call to glorify God. And David reinforces this call first by analogy. First by analogy. An analogy simply defined is a comparison. A comparison. Since our human understanding of power is limited to what we can see and experience in this world, it makes sense to compare God's power to things we know. And in this case, David speaks of nature's power, nature's power. And as Texans, we know thunder, don't we? We know thunder, especially in Texas during the spring when those severe storms show up. David says that when you hear that sound, that thunder, that shakes your home, that startles you, remember the power of God's voice. His voice is like that, says David. It shakes things. It is awe-inspired. It can even send fear down your spine. It is not to be trifled with. His voice is his power. Now, this is not just about using nature for comparison purposes. There is an element of that, of course, and the analogy does work very well for our instruction. The voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, is powerful like thunder. We get it. We understand the analogy. 
He deserves the glory because his power, which is like thunder over many waters. But there is more in this language. Now David will reinforce his call to glorify God by polemics. 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 P-O-L-E-M-I-C-S. Polemics. Embedded in this language that we are reading in verses 3 through 9 is judgment on idolatry. Judgment on idolatry. In a book titled, How to Read and Understand the Psalms, the authors explain how certain psalms have a highly polemical meaning. Uh, highly, they're, they're highly polemical meaning. They seek to highlight, now listen to this, important. They seek to highlight cultural elements within their own historical context that would have been perceived as controversial in their time. In other words, the language employed in the psalm would have been understood as an unmistakable critique or even attack on the gods of other nations. And that's what polemical writing or polemical speech is. It is meant to be a strong critique. And this, of course, went back and forth. At times, it came from the surrounding nations against Israel, as we learn, for example, in Psalm 115, where the nations mocked Israel, saying, where is their God? That was polemical speech. But the Jews, like David, at times responded loud and clear, as in the case of Elijah. Remember Elijah? What did Elijah do? He mocked and attacked the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. That was in-your-face polemics. At other times, the polemic was a bit more subtle, as in the case of Psalm 29. For instance, think about this, thunder. In the ancient world, and in particular in the Jewish mindset, often evoke the idea of judgment. Of judgment. During the seventh plague in Egypt, thunder was a part of God's judgment on Egypt. When Samuel gave his farewell speech to the people of Israel, he warned them not to become rebellious against the Lord. And if they did, Samuel said, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And the Lord sent thunder and rain, and the people greatly feared the Lord. Thunder and fire in the Jewish mindset are loaded words, hard to miss their intention. But notice also that the voice of the Lord not only is powerful like thunder in that it is full of judgment, but it goes places. It does things. Did you notice that in the psalm? It goes places and it does things. According to verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, but not just any cedar tree. David talks about a particular group of cedar trees located where? Lebanon. It is those strong and mighty trees that the voice of the Lord breaks. Why? Why Lebanon? Why that specific location? Well, according to the, the book that I mentioned, Lebanon was the very heart of Baal worship. Talk about polemics. David is engaging here in polemical writing by signaling that the voice of the Lord has the power and the ability to break false worship, to break idolatry, Baal worship in particular. 
If Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal, here David is attacking Baal's citadel, and he's going right into it without asking any permission. It is not Baal who rules the storm, but the true God of Israel. And God's voice makes all the nations, including Baal worshipers, skip like a young calf in fear. Whatever power, whatever mighty trees, whatever military power, the God of Israel is over all of it, and he has the power to smash as he pleases. That's what David is saying. This, my friends, is polemical writing. Here's David challenging the idolatry of his time. But this is still true, isn't it? Isn't it still true? Every time we open God's word and we teach it, we preach it, we explain it, we apply it, we are directly or indirectly challenging all idolatry, all of it. Everything that pulls us away from the true God. We do this in our own lives and in the lives of those who listen. The word of the Lord is always purging us, always cleansing us, always making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The the word of the Lord is always defeating idolatry in our own lives. The voice of the Lord is still breaking strongholds in our lives and throughout the world. Did you realize that uh, when the word of the Lord entered uh, Thessalonica, what did he do? During the ministry of Paul. To the Thessalonians, Paul said, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And why did they do that? Why did they turn from idols to the true God? Paul answers by saying, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. The voice of the Lord, his word goes forth like thunder over the waters and it breaks the cedars of Lebanon, meaning it destroys idolatry and no false God can stop it from accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent, as Isaiah says. The Thessalonians were freed from idolatry because the voice of the Lord reached within their hearts, their lives, their families, their homes, and turned them into God-glorifying people. Because of the word, they came to understand their chief end. At Kadesh, which is mentioned in verse 9, the Israelites themselves rebelled against the Lord and were faithless. It was there that the voice of the Lord proved true and rebuked them for their fear and their lack of confidence in the word of the Lord concerning the conquest of the promised land. At Kadesh, the voice of the Lord proved the Israelites wrong about their fear. The word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord destroys pride. Therefore, because his voice does what it is meant to do, he is worthy of all the glory. God is truthful in all his ways. And so when when the storm has passed, the cedars have fallen, the fire has gone out, and the calf has skipped in fear, when all idolatry is destroyed, when all the idols are fallen, and God is proven true, though every man a liar, when all is said and done, only one remains on the throne, unmoved, unchanged, and unchallenged. And this is true now, and it will be. 
forever. This was David's conviction, as we see next. Our chief end vindicated. Our chief end vindicated. God is king for how long? You know this? Forever. Verse 10. See, after everything is said and done, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Have you ever wondered why after the Lord created the heavens and the earth on the seventh day, he rested? Have you ever wondered about that? It's always kind of a complex language, perplexing in a, in a way. I think if we are honest, many of us don't really know what to do with that verse. God rested on the seventh day. Why would God need to rest? Isn't tiredness a concept foreign to God? Isn't God one who never gets tired? Then what's the point? I think God himself answered that question through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 66, 66 verse 1, God speaks of creation this way. Listen to how God speaks of creation. Heaven is my... It's a whole bunch of whispering, and I can't hear anything. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my what? Footstool. Thank you, Larry. You're close, so I can hear you. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What? How is that the answer to the question of God resting on the seventh day? I believe it is the answer because it explains what the universe is. If heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool, then by creating the universe, God was creating his own temple. Because thrones and footstools are inside temples. Therefore, on the seventh day, God rested not as a sign that he was tired, but as a symbol of his universal kingship. God rules over all creation, all of it, all of it. In Psalm 29, verse 10, David is contemplating this truth. Having stated the chief end of man and all created beings in verses 1 and 2, and having challenged the idolatry of his own time in verses 3 through 9, now in verse 10, he reminds all creation of who is in charge. There is a king. David says, and his name is not Baal or any other god. His name is Yahweh. All other gods are false gods. And this is the vindication of our chief end. Because God is on the throne and he is king, let us live for his glory. That's what David is saying. Why should we ascribe glory to God? Because he rules. He's king. What? Or who else would you live for? 
Can you find a more worthy object of your full devotion, your full worship, your full love? Is there anyone or anything higher than God? This is David's argument. The problem, of course, is that in our fallen humanness, we are prone to reject God's kingship. Sin can be understood as this relentless desire to usurp God's throne. We want a different king. This is precisely what Israel did in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Do you remember that story? They asked for a king to rule over them like the other nations. Who did they get? Saul. You know how sad the story was. But then something happened. Something happened. After centuries of bad king after bad king after bad king, and after 400 years of divine silence, hope returned to Jerusalem. See, it's interesting because they said, we don't want God as king. So after centuries, God said, well, I will come down then. A man named Jesus walked the roads of Jerusalem, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, loving his enemies. And this man eventually died on a cross for the sins of the world. He died because he, you know why he died? He died because he came to fight the real battle with the real enemy because he was the real king. He came to fight and win the ultimate battle with the adversary. How? By crucifying sin in his own body on the cross. And through that death, he won his victory. Having defeated sin and death, he was buried. But after three days, he arose from the dead. And as the second and last Adam, Jesus, risen from the dead, represents a brand new humanity created in himself. And so now, God rules over the entire cosmos but through and in that man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we see our chief end vindicated in Christ Jesus. He is the one who sits enthroned. Have you considered what Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says about Jesus? It's quite amazing. It says that all things were created through him and for him. Have you, have you thought what that means? All things were created through him and for him. That means that when God created the universe as his temple, he was already thinking about the future exaltation of his own son in the flesh. The universe was created by the father so that his son could one day rule it as a man, as the Son incarnate, as the first fruits of a new creation. And 40 days after his resurrection, from the dead, the Lord Jesus took his seat upon the throne. And now, as Psalm 72 says, he has dominion from sea to sea. In Jesus, our chief end is vindicated. 
For your life can have no greater purpose, my brother and my sister, my friend. Your life can have no greater purpose than to be spent for the glory of Christ. He, listen, He is the reason why you need to kill the flesh, the passions of your flesh. And He is the reason, His worthiness is the reason why you need to put lust to death. Can you think of a worthier object for you to live crucifying the flesh day after day? He is the reason why you need to forgive those who have offended you. It's not you. It's not your glory. It's the glory of Christ. It's the glory of Jesus. And to Jesus, God has given all authority in heaven and on earth. But the story doesn't end there. I can't preach this short. I mean, come on. Let's keep going. The story doesn't end there. Our chief end is also vindicated in the church. In the church. Where are we? We are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. One of the unique features of the God of the Jews, the God of David, is that unlike the false God, the true God is not selfish. He does everything he does for the sake of those whom he loves. He does everything he does for you and for me. So this takes us straight into our last point, our chief end enjoyed. What is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So here's our chief end enjoy. How? Strength and peace. Verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. If our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, then the question then becomes, how do we enjoy God? Well, we enjoy God by participating in his life. Remember that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God sent his son into the world so that you and I might share in his abundant life. And think about this. God is strong. Therefore, you can share in his, what? Strength. God is also the God of peace. Guess what? Therefore, you can share in his peace. In Christ Jesus, God shares his life with you. Our God is not distant. He is not indifferent. He is not hidden. His strength can be yours as well as his peace. How? Pentecost. Pentecost. Remember what Jesus did soon after he ascended into heaven as Lord and King? He sent the Spirit. Our chief end is enjoyed through the Spirit. It is by the Spirit that Jesus shares with us his own life. It is in the Spirit that the prayer of David in verse 11 is ultimately and definitively answered. This uh, Friday, uh, we, some of us took time to go visit Gary and Barb. Brian and Lara went to the hospital in the morning to visit with them, to give them encouragement. And then a few hours later, my wife and I were able to go as well for the same reason. And as I was driving to the hospital, I thought of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians as recorded in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. As I stood next to 
Gary's bed and as he was physically debilitated and weak, this is what I prayed for him. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What David prayed for in Psalm 29:11 is now a present, never-ending reality for us in the Holy Spirit. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is your strength. And what about peace? Well, this one is fairly simple, isn't it? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. You got it. Love, joy, peace. According to one Old Testament scholar, peace, which in the Hebrew language is shalom, means the absence of fear. The absence of fear. And what did Paul say to the Romans? Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So there you have it. David's prayer in Psalm 29, verse 11, answered fully by the Spirit of Jesus to all who are of the faith. If you are believing in Jesus today, I have good news for you. You can have God's strength and you can have God's peace. It is all available to you. What do I need to do to get it? You just have to ask him. You do not have because you do not ask. But because of the Spirit, we can have it all. Could it be that the Lord has placed some of you maybe in difficult trials and tribulations so that you might remember how much you actually need him? So that he might share with you what he has to offer? Strength and peace? So rather than complain, guess what? Ask him. Ask him. In your weakness, rejoice for the Lord is strong. And in your turmoil, rest for the Lord is your peace. And if all else fails, then please look at what we have here. The table has been set before you this morning. What does the, the, the table of the Lord tell you? What do you see when you consider the wine and the bread? I can tell you what you see. So I'm not really asking. I'm going to tell you what you see. You see the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's what you see. That's what you see. You see God, he given himself to you and for you fully and completely. In the Lord's table, you see a Lord who died for you by shedding his own blood. Will the same Lord not give you strength when he willingly gave you life? And will he not also, who died for you, also share with you his peace? If his body and blood were given for you, will he not also give you strength and peace? Do you need any more proof that he loves you? Do you dare ask God for more than the sacrifice of love that this table reminds you of? You are loved in the beloved, both now 
and forever. Our chief end has been stated, reinforced, vindicated, and now enjoyed in Christ and through the Spirit. David's prayer has been answered, and all of it is yours. All of it. All of it is yours. Look at the table of the Lord this morning. And here's my invitation. Come, receive, and enjoy what is yours by faith in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this simple, a timely reminder of what we need and what has been provided for us by you in Christ and by the Spirit. Now guide us as we now come together to enjoy what is ours in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.